welcome back to one more thing. I am back from Europe. I uh, am actually been back for a, about a week now, but I think I finally got over jet lag. The first few days were rough, waking up at three in the morning and figuring out it's definitely not five in the morning or six in the morning. I was lucky it wasn't at least an all-nighter every night for about a week, but definitely normalized back after what was a little hit or miss there early on. So today I want to just quickly go through a review of my current Europe trip that I just got back from, which was totally awesome and, and loved going with 24 of us in a total group. Um, and then we ended up with a couple of other groups as well. So it was a bit of a whirlwind tour, as they call it, a bit of a sample platter of Europe. And I'm going to kind of go through each city, kind of tell you my, my highlights and what I thought were some of the most poignant pieces that we experienced over this trip. The cool thing for me is that even though it's a 12-day trip, so it's relatively short, it's only a little less than two weeks, with two really heavy travel days, um, I, we actually traveled back on my birthday, which ended up feeling like Groundhog Day because it just never ended. So uh, anyway, uh, on the flight out, we took a nice 10-hour hop over the pond and ended up in Amsterdam where we had a really long layover. And <laughs> the, the cool thing about the Amsterdam airport is that they have uh, these really awesome massage chairs, which are quite nice when you're after you've gotten off, off a 10-hour flight. And they had an outdoor seating area with you know, foliage and greenery and whatnot. So you actually felt like you had a, a break or relief from just confined, sterile air, um, which was great. So the Amsterdam airport, if you're going to be stuck somewhere for five hour layover, layover that one wasn't bad at all. Um, and they actually had really good food at one of the markets uh, inside the airport. So that was nice. And then we took our uh, last little jaunt down to Rome and landed in Rome around four or five local time. Got out, met our guide, uh, made our way to the hotel, and then had a nice night kind of in Rome. Uh, just taking a short trip around before we got the, the big tour and whatnot the next day. Um, and a couple of the highlights for me from Rome, this time around the Vatican, was actually really tough to go through because it was so crowded uh, when we went. It felt like we were just standing in line the whole time. So, you know, you're making your way through the Vatican, but you're kind of just doing it like it's a giant Disneyland line and you're not really ever getting on a ride, except obviously there's a couple of incredible pieces in there. Uh, my highlights every time I walk through there are always the School of Athens, which... I finally got a good picture of because I didn't have a, a great picture so I can use that one in class, which is nice. Uh, and then obviously the Sistine Chapel, which um, I, I kind of cheated the tour in that instead of me making my way to the back, like they kind of usher you through the Sistine Chapel and then you kind of have to funnel yourself to wherever you want to stand because you're not allowed to talk in there and everyone's kind of just huddled together and it's very claustrophobic, especially if you're someone that doesn't deal well with crowds. So I went straight in and took a left right in the center of the Sistine Chapel because I know that 
I want to see the Sistine Chapel from the exact center, which is kind of right above you is the creation of man. So I did that. And, um, you know, that from that perspective, I find the rest of the Sistine Chapel just incredible. Uh, the creation of man itself, that, that piece is somewhat life-changing when you see it and analyze it and see everything that's in it. Uh, obviously, the, the highlights is uh, God reaching out and imparting into Adam his uh, part of himself. And, and God is actually inside of this kind of cloth uh, thing that is holding him. And it actually is a human brain. Uh, the, the outline of a human brain, which God is inside of, and then he's imparting man with part of himself, uh, which has obviously got a ton of allegory and storytelling within that just simple, uh, small piece within the Sistine Chapel. And then my favorite piece is definitely the altar or above the altar where you have the Last Judgment, which is just rife with so much uh, commentary that there, there is so much commentary that you can discuss within that piece. Michelangelo's self-portrait, which is actually just the skin of, I believe it's St. Lawrence who was grilled alive, um, or filleted alive. And then, or maybe St. Lawrence is the one who was grilled alive. Um, and the other saint is the one that was filleted alive. Either way, Michelangelo's body is being dangled down and dropped down into hell which is at the very bottom and of course in hell the people that Michelangelo didn't like he he paints in there and you know there, there's all sorts of things commentary and whatnot that you can talk about with with Michelangelo um, and then you make your way through the rest of the Sistine Chapel which is obviously it's a relatively small space but because there's so many people it's not like you can move very quickly through there um, and then you go down to the St. Peter's uh, Basilica. And for me, the highlight in there is the, the altarpiece uh, underneath the dome, which is huge. It's something like 100 or so. I think it's 80 to 90 feet high, but it feels bigger than that. Um, and it's just this solid bronze uh, piece. So I got a chance to actually look at that in more detail than I had the last time I was in there. And then we kind of circled back, got out of the um, St. Peter's Basilica, uh, took a couple of pictures from the outside. And I, I would say the other big piece that I was excited about in Rome, which was such an awesome experience this time going, was the Colosseum. Because we got a chance to go out on the floor. And there's the floor is more difficult to get into because you're scheduled in there you can't just line up and go into the floor you, you have to schedule it ahead of time and obviously since we're in a group and all that kind of stuff is done for us we kind of showed up and oh we have the floor visit so we you walk out into the floor kind of like you're a participant in one of the games at the coliseum uh in what they rebuilt the floor so that it has that uh sand type look it's not sand anymore it's more of a synthetic that looks like sand but you actually get to go and see a much closer view of what the underside of the Colosseum would look like, where they stored the prisoners and they stored gladiators and they stored animals and all the trap doors and whatnot. So you, your view of that was obviously much better from there. Uh, and then you get a chance to view the rest of the Colosseum and walk through the rest of the Colosseum afterwards. So that was an incredible experience as well um, and definitely worth 
doing if you can ever go to the Coliseum and do a tour where you actually get to be on the floor I highly recommend doing it because it's a completely different experience than doing it any other way um, the Coliseum itself is such a dynamic building because you know it's built in a period of time with uh, you know very little modern technology at all and it's such a advanced uh, building that obviously we've modeled the majority of our sports complexes off of the simplicity of the Coliseum and how easy it is to get in and out of and all of those things. So it, its innovation is definitely felt throughout the, the Roman world, but then throughout the Western world and now uh, throughout the entire world uh, as more and more sports venues copy its design and shape um, repetitively. The Next stop we had on our trip was uh, Florence, and for me, Florence is probably the greatest city in the world. It still is the greatest city in the world for me. It just has everything. You know, if you're someone who doesn't like big cities, Florence is actually not that intimidating. It gives you the illusion that it's more intimate than it is. Um, the, the interesting thing about Italy is that generally most of the cities are relatively small, um, and then you have a couple of big cities Rome being the biggest one. Uh, and then some of these other ones, Florence is something like three to 400,000 people, but it doesn't feel like that. Um, I actually get the feeling that Venice is bigger than Florence, which it's not. Venice is something like 50 or 60,000 people. So it's, it's not nearly as big as Florence, but Florence has this intimate quality to it that many big cities can't provide you with. And for me, of course, the main attraction always in Florence is the David. And everyone that sees it uh, definitely appreciates it even more when you're able to see it in person and see the original. There's three copies of the David throughout Florence. One is in Michelangelo's Square that's overlooking uh, the rest of Florence and gives you an incredible view of the city, especially at night, which we actually hiked up at night and took pictures at night of, of Florence and just were able to hang out and enjoy the city from that viewpoint. And then in the town square uh, where City Hall is, you have the copy of the David, which is an exact exact replica of the David, but doesn't quite hold the same qualities as the original for some reason. <clears throat> and then also in the city square, the, the piece that speaks probably uh, the most to me is the Perseus and Medusa which is by Cellini. And that piece, the bronze sculpture, is incredibly dynamic with um, what I actually had never seen before. There's underneath the piece, there's actually a small relief of the rest of the story of Perseus and Medusa. So you have kind of the event of Perseus beheading Medusa, and that's the piece that Cellini is presenting in the square. But then underneath the piece, he tells the rest of the story. Um, in kind of a traditional medieval fashion. So um, definitely a, a piece worth seeing and, and probably the main attraction currently in the Florentine uh, Square there, uh, downtown Town Hall Square. And then we actually hiked uh, all the way to the top of the tower in the Town Hall, which by far was the best view of Florence I've ever experienced. Um, I've never actually climbed the Duomo and my wife did the Duomo, but she did the tower with me this time. And the tower in 
both of our opinions, uh, hers specifically because she's done both, is superior because the Duomo is included in the view that you are experiencing from the tower. And you actually get a chance to see Florence from a viewpoint that is just astonishing. Uh, you look out, you see the river, you see kind of how the growth of a city occurs in kind of that circular manner. Um, and, and you see how it's really connected and, and uh, intimate from that viewpoint. Um, it definitely gives you this perspective that you clearly can't get any other way. Um, unless you were maybe taking a hot air balloon tour of Florence or something like that, which I've never actually seen anyone do. So um, those were the, the big things in Florence. Uh, we made our way down to Verona for a short trip to the uh, Juliet house where you can go and see where uh, she apparently stayed. Most of that trip was odd because that whole thing is mostly legend and uh, folklore and whatnot. And, and one of the things that I really liked about our tour director this time is that he did a really good job of narrating um, one theme that I hadn't really considered as in detail as I did in this trip. And that's really how cities see themselves. Um, when, when you look at Europe and, and cities and, and really humanity as a whole, one of the things that we consistently do but are sometimes uh, not overly keen on is the way that we present our history. Um, and a lot of these older cities like Rome and Florence and Verona and Venice and all of those, especially the Italian cities, they, they all have this rich tradition of history and storytelling and folklore that really tries to embody how the city itself views itself and, and wants to promote that view to other people. So uh, I was really interested in seeing that and seeing the differences between each of these cities and how they promoted themselves to the world. Rome kind of promoting itself as almost a, an immigrant city that could, you know, was a world beater in a way. Uh, you know, the, the Romulus and Remus story and uh, how they're suckled by a she-wolf and uh, founded the city of Rome, you know, all, all of these things that are clearly uh, beyond human capacity, but really tell a, a story about how the Romans viewed themselves. Uh, and really this concept that Rome could do whatever it wanted and did what it wanted because it was Rome. Uh, and then you have Florence, which is totally different. And the, the Florence, uh, the Florentine symbol is that flower kind of uh, developing and it sees itself as kind of that hub of art and humanity and beauty. And uh, and if you walk around Florence, you get that sense immediately. The, if you take just one trip down to City Hall, the thing that sits right next to it is the Uffizi Gallery, where you have all of the legends in Florentine history that shaped its academic and artistic world. Um, you have your Michelangelo's and Galileo's and uh, Da Vinci is there and all of these other world-changing minds and artists that uh, are glamorized in a time where that was generally not overly accepted to glamorize artists and uh, figures in that respect. Most cities had glamorized in the past their leaders 
um, and not their artists and their writers and, and whatnot. But Florence does it slightly differently. And then you get to Venice, which was for us after Verona. And in uh, Venice, they really embody this almost underdog approach to everything. Um, the winged lion is their symbol, and which comes from St. Mark. And what you find is that v Venice sees itself as the power of the northern Italian states. Um, and it's a hub of trade and merchant wealth and whatnot. Um, it really prides itself on the fact that it's a republic. And that's clearly seen if you take one trip through the Doge's Palace, which in my opinion was by far the best component of Venice uh, that I went through. The, the Doge's Palace is awe-inspiring for sure. Uh, every room is incredibly intricate, um, done by m many of the pieces done by Titian, who's probably the greatest uh, Italian, um, at least Venetian Renaissance painter uh, and court painter for a while during that period. But one of the things that's inter interesting about Venice is that it was ruled most of the time uh, by these doges, which are elected uh, noblemen, and they would serve a life term but they would generally elect older, older men who would die relatively quickly and they could elect someone else. So you didn't just have this lineage of doges that would be passed down through heredity, which they didn't do. They did it simply through election, which is a different approach, obviously, than a Rome um, or even Florence, which for a, a long period of time was led by the Medici uh, family. And then uh, after Venice, well, Venice for me was cool. It was definitely worth going and seeing. But it wasn't one of those places that I'm sitting there going, man, I wish I could spend forever in Venice. Like it, it was good actually in two days. Uh, and I don't know if I would have appreciated it more or less being there longer, but uh, it, it was nice. It was beautiful. It was something I've never seen. Uh, definitely worth the trip to it, but I felt like I got everything I needed to get out of it in a short stay. Um, and then we made our way to Munich, which was a bit of a, actually, in between there, we went to Salzburg in Austria, which was a bit of a drive through the Alps in Europe. And I have to say, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Yosemite when I was a kid. Yosemite is absolutely beautiful and don't take anything away from Yosemite. It's still one of my most beautiful places in the world. But the Alps in Europe and driving through the Alps is different. It's uh, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. You come across these beautiful cities that are just these tiny uh, towns, villages that are still somewhat antiquated, but have this incredible life to them. Everything's so green. Obviously, when we went to Salzburg, it was raining, so that probably added somewhat to the greenery, but at the same time, I, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of anything in the Alps where it wasn't green. Um, but it, it was just an incredible experience, definitely worth the time. When I was in Salzburg, uh, even though it was raining, I kept saying to other people, and I, to this day, if I decided to be a writer and I could live anywhere in the world, it would absolutely be Salzburg. It, you feel like you could sit there and write outdoors, in the in the shade and experience this beautiful city but just in a really quiet and um manner that i mean one of the things that you stop in in salzburg is the mozart house where he grew up and 
you definitely realize that Mozart is a genius and he's brilliant and uh, all of that probably would have happened no matter where he was born, but Salzburg definitely cultivated a lot of those things, I'm sure, in uh, Mozart's uh, experience and the way that he moved on. And then um, from Salzburg, we took a trip up to Munich. And Munich, for me, was by far the favorite of the newer cities that I had been to. Um, something about Munich that I think I really appreciated, one, it was really affordable to stay and eat there. Um, you know, most of our meals, lunches-wise, were five euros or less. You, you could easily get away with spending very little money and still getting good food at the outdoor market in a really cool environment. Um, Munich felt incredibly safe and was it has its own beauty that I never really expected, but it was incredible. I loved it. Um, you know, downtown, the downtown portion of Munich, the old part of it, uh, had this just incredible beauty and uh, accepting vibe in general. We, we actually got there right after Germany had been removed from the World Cup um, after losing in the group stage. And we definitely thought that all of Germany would be in mourning uh, since they were probably the leading contender to win the World Cup. But they were incredibly nice people and uh, incredibly accepting the majority of the shop owners and whatnot spoke English and actually spoke it relatively well and were um, making jokes here and there about how uh, they were exactly like us now. And, you know, you obviously make the joke back. Well, we never could be as good as you anyway, but uh, thanks for at least trying to feel like we had something in common. Um, but anyway, Munich was uh, an incredible little city. Um, I actually in my own discovery and, and talking with some of the other people found that it was actually an incredibly expensive place to live, which surprised me because of the prices of food felt really cheap. Um, but apparently it's really overpopulated. The unemployment rate is really low in Munich. It's something like one or 2%. So you can get a job, but you can't get a flat apparently. So, uh, but it, it was a really cool city, definitely a younger city and one that I would love to go back to. Um, and then we made our way up to Rothenburg, which is this kind of preserved, almost biosphere type city where you kind of have this old German city um, that has been preserved for a really long period of time uh, in a way almost for tourism. Um, you get in there and it looks like it, it was just out of a postcard. Um, it's a beautiful city. It's definitely worth going to. Um, and that, that's the thing I liked about Germany and Austria is that as you were driving, you kind of just kept recognizing that there were a lot of these little little towns and little cities that would have been totally worth staying in and just experiencing the German culture, um, which is incredibly rich and, and worth your time. Um, the one thing that I, I didn't talk about yet and I wanted to just briefly talk about is, is our quick day trip when we were in Munich to... Dachau or uh, Dachau and that one was one of the most um, impressive and yet depressing and uh, I would say character changing experiences that you can have. Um, I've been to Holocaust museums but 
th this one was different because it wasn't just a camp for Jews, and actually many of the people that were in the camp were actually not Jewish. Uh, there definitely were Jews that were there, but generally not. Um, you know, if, if you do study the Holocaust, the majority of the Jewish camps and the ones that had mostly Jews in them were in Poland, uh, where the majority of Jews had lived during that period. And in Germany, where uh, Dachau is, or Dachau, it, you had very few uh, of that population, but rather you had dissenters. Uh, so you had people that were from other political parties other than the Nazi party, um, and they were housed there. Uh, but what's really interesting about Dachau is it is almost like its own version of the way Germany had created itself. So it's incredibly race and class based. So it, it was sectioned off by the different type of person you were. Um, and the ones that they classified as the lowest were generally uh, Russians because there were some Russians that were there. Um, obviously, Hitler and Stalin don't see eye to eye ever. And um, and then the other groups that were the lowest on the totem pole, obviously, the Jews are there. And then uh, communists and the socialists, so the, the people that were, you know, as far away from Hitler's version of uh, what Germany should look like, they, they were the ones that were stratified kind of to the lowest level of Dachau. Um, but when you take the trip through it, one of the things that got me uh, was the gate that you walk through to go into the camp. And when you're walking through, first of all, you do not get the sense that you're in a concentration camp necessarily, because it looks like you're just walking through a typical garden or down a street. And then all of a sudden you come across this evil place. And on the front of the gates when you are first dropped off where the train station is you walk through this gate that says arbecht mach frit or free which translates to the the work sets you free and it's uh i'm probably saying the german wrong obviously but the translation is correct and there's this just haunting propaganda that begins your journey into Dachau, where you get the early idea that, oh, I'm going to be set free by my work. Like, I, I'm going to find freedom in this place. And, and ironically, uh, many of these people had to find a version of freedom for themselves in the work, because there was definitely no other freedom that they were enjoying. Um, you know, and, and as I walked in, I think the things that hit me the hardest was one, walking through that gate um, and looking out at how big the concentration camp was uh, and how many rows of barracks there were. Uh, many of them are destroyed now. They only have two of the barracks that had been redone and recreated. And then there's probably about 10 to 12 rows of them behind them on each side. There's probably 24 to 30 barracks that are no longer there that were destroyed uh, after the war. Um, and then they, if you walk to the very end of the property, the, the thing that got me also was walking through a Protestant church there at the end. They had actually 
three or four separate churches where people could go on their day of worship and in a way probably find some um, version of freedom in that as well, uh, at least for a small amount of time. And then across the river um, was the crematorium and uh, the gas chamber, which had actually not been used at Dachau. The majority of um, these concentration camps were not death camps, but rather um, work camps that were either transitioned into death camps or like Dachau never actually transitioned, which it was not. Um, But still walking through those buildings, you get this just sense that uh, of, of the value of life. Um, and one of the things that I think sticks out most in my own mind is just that this can happen at any time, anywhere. And you get this sense. And, and one of the things that I think is so disturbing about the Holocaust and really what the Nazis did in Germany is that they did it from this scary place of in their own mind logic they they thought that this was just what you did with someone that was standing in your way and presenting themselves as a different opinion about how to deal with politics or religion or um you know and obviously with the nazis their stigmatization of the jews was somewhat different than some of the Uh, political prisoners and whatnot, uh, gypsies and others that were housed in these concentration camps. Obviously, it's somewhat different between the two, but it it all fits into their view of how to change society and make it into something that they saw as more pure. And, And what is most disturbing, obviously, is their application of their own logic, even though it's flawed logic, and obviously it doesn't have anything, any type of uh, civility in it, in, in their opinion, it was logical. And I think for me, that's what's so disturbing and sad. And what makes really that memorial and any Holocaust memorial so important that we understand that people can get to a place when they become so radicalized, they can get to a place where they lose any sense of reality and create logic that is actually illogical and unrealistic. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from that experience was just walking through this empty place that it's almost like it, it lacked all humanity. And yet the, the thing that you find when you just stop and listen is you hear nature and you hear, you actually see beauty left in many of the places throughout that place because it's almost like nature had taken over again um, and had taken a place that had once been so dark and turned it back into something beautiful again. Um, And and it's such a weird, ironic conundrum that you're in when you experience that type of thing um, in more of an intimate fashion. So um, if you ever get a chance to go to a concentration camp uh, or go to a death camp or anything Um, While it does seem probably nicer on your day to skip it, please don't. Give yourself the opportunity to experience something that is probably necessary in you really understanding what this 
experiences that we're all going through and, and really what's valuable and what we need to take from things like this. And I think my biggest takeaway at the end of the day after seeing all of that was that this was something that you have to experience more intimately in order to really understand it. Um, you know, you can watch all the Holocaust movies that you want, but until you set foot, actual foot, into a concentration camp and see what it looked like, it's different. And it gives you a significantly different experience than kind of the superficial one that media can provide. So maybe at the end of the day, the other takeaway that you can pull from this is that, you know, as much as we like to think that we're so connected by media and connected by the things that we're viewing in other people's experiences, you have to go out and do those things for yourself. And those experiences uh, will be the ones that you actually can draw from and, and draw better conclusions from because they're going to stick in your brain rather than the ones that are more superficial um, or created for you. Um, so with that, that'll be the end of one more thing for today. Thanks for sticking around for a longer uh, experience today. And uh, if you can, please uh, drop a review on iTunes, uh, share it around with other people in case uh, you think they might want a quick synopsis of a Europe trip this year. So that's Europe 2018. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you all later. Have a good one. Bye.